0: Before we get started, a quick disclaimer this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, our portfolio manager at Rangeley. And with me, as always, is my co host and Range's founder, Chris Demuth. Today, we're going to start by talking a little bit about Kroger and the grocery sector. And then we're going to move on to a discussion on spinoffs. So, Chris, why don't we start with Kroger? They're the grocery store giant, one of the biggest players in the nation. You know, Walmart's obviously the biggest grocery store player, but Kroger and Albertsons are right up there with them in terms of just groceries. And it's been a really rough year for Kroger. You know, same store sales have been up a little bit, but. A looming battle with Amazon has really caused some pressure on the company and uh, the stock is down 40% year to date. About half that drop came the day Amazon announced that they were going to buy Whole Foods. So investors are clearly, you know, it's not really weak sales now that's driven a lot of this. Uh, It's driven some, but it's really investors looking at the future and saying, hey, Kroger, standalone grocery store, these things are going to be under a lot of price pressure as Walmart, Amazon, everyone continues to move in here. This morning, the company announced a program dubbed Restock Kroger. Kroger. It's going to focus on cost-cutting and improving customers' experiences, as well as a plan to sell off their convenience stores, which includes just tremendous brands like The Loaf and Jug and Tom Thumb, which just fantastic stuff. We've talked about convenience stores a little bit on this podcast recently, too. We mentioned Warren Buffett moving into buying Pilot J the truck stops last week, and obvious buyers for these would include 7-Eleven and Alimente Tard, which just bought CST. So, Chris, I've talked a lot. I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about Kroger, the grocery store, the sale of the convenience stores? everything.
1: Today's podcast involves so many dumb brand names. I mean, Alimentation Couchtard, I've always thought is one of the funniest sounding corporate names. But if you look at each of the convenience store brand names, I think that you stop for a convenience store when you are out of gas or need to pee. And so it really does not come down to how good this store brand is. And they kind of gave it as much thought as it deserves. Kroger has always been a pretty okay operator. So a lot of the things that they could do to improve their position, they'd already kind of done. So you have Amazon becoming much more Kroger-like, not in just in buying Whole Foods, but even moving Whole Foods to be more of a direct competitor of Kroger, if you look at the moves they've made since they were bought. And then if you look At Walmart, Walmart's becoming more Amazon-like. And so you have kind of this convergence. You have vicious competitors. You have Kroger caught in the crossfire. It looks pretty grim. Uh, The idea that they would sell off the convenience stores seems like a good move. You might as well. I don't think they mentioned what they're going to do with their restaurant concept. They should probably kill that too in the process.
0: It's funny. The restaurant concept, they announced it two months ago. They said, Hey, we're going to build out this. I think it's 1886, this in-store restaurant concept. So in many ways, you know, Amazon bought Whole Foods and the first thing Amazon did was lower a bunch of Whole Foods prices. Kroger opening an in-store restaurant concept is almost saying, Hey, we're going to where Whole Foods used to be. And, you know, if you're Kroger, like when I just think of their reputation, like I'm not thinking, Hey, I'm going to a Kroger to go to their in-store Restaurant. A lot of critics agreed with you. Like, why open a restaurant? I understand you kind of want to capture extra margin, but your business isn't really well set up to f- open up a restaurant that would really attract people.
1: I, I just don't picture it. I mean, I'm I, lo- I love eating at home. I don't mind going out if I'm going on a date or going with a bunch of friends, but I just can't imagine saying, "Hey, Andrew, do you want to uh, stop by Kroger and uh, have a meal?" I mean, it just seems very, very kind of funny in terms of the corporate culture. They are on defense. If I was trying to play defense at Kroger, I would kind of of start by let's get rid of extraneous distractions. It sounds like an extraneous distraction to me. So stock is cheap, but the business is legitimately under a lot of pressure. It's a tough business. They've done a lot with consumer data. They get good data, but gee, they're already okay operators. So they haven't been doing incredibly stupid things that they can start doing smart things with, they kind of have been okay so it's not clear to me how much they can improve.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, you're hitting on a lot of points I thought were interesting in this presentation. You know, they came out and they said, hey, we've got all this consumer data and we've been using it and we're going to increasingly use it to segment our customers more and sell more stuff to our customers. And they said, hey, look, we admit over the past years we haven't been all as firm on price cutting as we have been, but now that Amazon's here, like we're going to be even firmer on price cutting. We're going to get our customers even better prices. And you know, It's heartening to see them go and make these moves, you know, these are moves that need to be made. But at the same time, this is the same management team and it's kind of like, hey, it's 2017, You are already in a very tough operate environment. It's, you know, Amazon's moving in, sure, but you already had Walmart. So why is it taking this long for you to go and cut more prices? Like, why do you have excess costs at this point? It's not like this is a tech company where you kind of, you know, pay for your employees, employees, lunches and groceries because one employee can create all this magical value. You know, this is a company where you really need to keep costs cut to the bare minimum. You operate on no margin. There's no competitive advantage. Why does it take till 2017 for you to say, Hey, we've got this data. We're already using some of it. We're going to use more of it. Like the computers are there, computer resources are cheap. Why aren't you already using all this data? Target could figure out that their customers were pregnant, like based on what they were buying, what, 10 years ago? Why couldn't Kroger do that sort of stuff? So, in some ways, it's hardening, but in some ways, I kind of look at this management team and I say, w- what's taking you till now to kind of get into the 2017s?
1: The science around organizing the stores is pretty well baked and already been taken care of. You can have targeted coupons, you know, but geez, this is stuff that is pretty dated at this point. Yeah. And then the other
0: Side, you know, you mentioned the stock certainly does look cheap. They're going to do about $2 in earnings per share. It's trading at a little bit over $20. So you're looking at 10 to 11 times earnings. This should be a very stable company. So it's probably 10 to 11 times earning whether, you know, we're in an economic boom or an economic bust next year. They pay a nice little dividend. They buy back shares. I think they've bought back about 3% of their shares outstanding so far this year. So you kind of look at it and you say, hey, it checks a lot of the kind of boxes. But this to me, it's just the type of investment that's kind of you look at it and you say, Hey, I'm buying it for 11 times earnings, and maybe it's worth 13 times earnings. Like, it's just not the investment that it's tough to get super excited about, which sometimes those are the best investments, but you know, it's just tough for me to get excited about making an investment or really looking at this stock when Amazon, Walmart, all these guys are really coming into the competitive picture.
1: The future's not here yet. You know, we talked about, I think it was our last call or certainly recently on the pilot acquisition by Warren Buffett that sort of presupposed that there's money to be made before we. We have self-driving and before we have kind of driverless trucks. And if that is the case for truck stops, it is almost certainly the case for convenience stores as well. So the kind of future is not already here. We don't already kind of jump to the next level. There's money to be made. In the meanwhile, could be a thought that could lead buyers to come in here on the convenience store brands. You know,
0: the future not being here, I think that's a good point. But I do think like bundles are here. And Kroger, you know, to me, their only business is selling groceries. But if you look at what a Walmart or Amazon are trying to do. They're trying to lure customers in with low margin groceries, maybe selling them at cost in order to get them to buy other things. You know, Amazon wants them to join Prime and Amazon wants them to buy a lot of other things off Amazon. Walmart wants them to come in store and not just buy groceries, buy clothes and buy electronics and everything. So when I look at Kroger, you know, I look at a boring business beset by competitors who might kind of see their business as a little bit of a cost leader. Mm -hmm. Just a tough business, just Mm -hmm. a tough business. you have anything else here? You want to go to Spinoff? Spinoffs. Spinoffs. So let's turn over to spinoffs. The Wall Street Journal had an article today called The Reason Investors Love Spinoffs, Juicier Returns. You know, and I think for event-driven investors, this is something that has been a very open secret. The Wall Street Journal showed a spinoff index. It's almost tripled the returns of the S&P 500 over the past, I think it's the past three years. Why are spinoffs outperforming the S&P 500 by so much? The Wall Street Journal cited a couple things. You know, they said better management incentives. Companies go from kind of being, redheaded stepchilds in terms of capital allocation to being able to invest money into their core business is there was a lot of talk about activists' history with spinoffs and how spinning off is kind of step one in an activist playbook where you say, hey, you own golf clubs and shower caps. Why don't those two businesses have nothing together? Why don't you spin them off? But it also gave the example of some poor spinoffs over the past couple years. So, Chris, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about spinoffs? What do you think the outlook for them going forward
1: is? I don't want to sound dogmatic here. Good spinoffs are good and bad spinoffs are bad. However, it is a category that I'm very fascinated about, and for the most part, very encouraged by M&A and the process of corporate transactions. Is generally one and sh- should be one that gets corporate assets put to their best highest use. That you know we've had a history, including the conglomeration era, where accounting and tax tricks led to businesses that were not that coherent in terms of what they did, in terms of management focus and talent, in terms of the maximum possible cost savings and kind of coherence in terms of what they do. So a lot of it was taking that apart. The problem with M&A or the problem with a sale of a corporate asset at a given point in time is that it is a spot market. So even if I say, hey, I want to focus on subsidiary A, let's sell subsidiary B, maybe A should be the focus, but B is not the right moment in time to sell it and that that you're overly reliant on that spot market. The nice thing about spinoffs is it lets you both focus on what you should be focused on and decouple that decision from the decision of when precisely to sell the rest of the business because it can frequently go, although there's a moratorium on the timing, to another business ultimately can be put to its best highest use, but it doesn't need to happen at the same time.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I I think that's exactly right. I do think outside of the M&A context, I do think incentives matter. And one of the issues with having a small division within a bigger company is you know, if you're paying stock and you're paying stock in, let's just say, GE stock and you, you run GE's healthcare division and you get paid in GE overall stock. Well, the healthcare division—it's a piece of GE, but it might not be the biggest piece of GE. So, you know, you might not work as hard because your job only determines one piece of how GE overall does. Whereas, if they spin off their healthcare unit and all of a sudden you get paid in stock completely tied to your healthcare unit, you know, you might work a little bit harder because you can get a lot richer based on that stock option. So, I do think there is something with incentives matter. I do think you said good spinoffs are good, bad spinoffs are bad. I do think going. Forward, there is a question: are we going to see an increase in bad spin-offs? You know, I look at things like Dow and DuPont, they're merging, and the merger is almost explicitly, hey, we're merging to then go and spin these units off. Like that is a very interesting rationale for doing a giant merger followed immediately by a spinoff. Bankers and consultants probably love it because they get a lot of fees, but it's kind of strange for a company to say merge to unmerge almost. And I do think companies also picked up a little bit: hey, people are looking to buy spin and they started spinning off kind of lower quality businesses that they didn't really want to deal with because investors would bid up a premium and they might be able to issue some shares or equity with kind of elevated prices from people just looking to buy any spinoff to capture this thing. I don't know if you want to say anything there.
1: Especially where you've had activists pushing for these and you've had the activists pushing for them for a while, kind of the most obvious candidates, a lot of them have already done this. In terms of the most obvious candidates, two categories I'd really focus on are one is when you have a conglomerated business that has subsets that use a totally different metric for how investors would value it so that you have kind of a mishmash of the most relevant salient Metrics. Secondly, when you have different types of constituencies where they're just different investors, where somebody's in it for the growth, somebody's in it for the value, somebody's in it for the IP, somebody on one hand might be, or some set of shareholders might want only cash generating pharma and somebody else might want the R&D stuff and that when you GM them together, neither is getting full credit. So you separate them and you have both different constituencies who have legitimate purposes as investors and then you have legitimate metrics that are both fine, but the commingling them hides and obfuscates on both sides. You know, these are
0: interesting things and these are generally cited as reasons for spinoffs and I think they do make sense. But at the same time, this is the market can't do math argument, right? Like, hey, division A should trade for 50 times earnings. Division B should trade for 10 times earning and the whole company trades for 10 times earning. Let's split them up and division B will get the 50 times earning. I mean, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it is interesting to say like most of the time markets are probably efficient. And the argument for the spin-off is, hey, the market can't do math or, hey, the investors who are looking at this, they can't go and say, hey, this division should trade on a revenue multiple. This division should trade on an EBITDA multiple. Now, I also wonder if going forward as we continue to shift from active investing to passive investing, if this market can't do math argument that has traditionally been made, if it increases
1: going forward. That's a lot of philosophical stuff, but I'll turn it over to you. When the differences are subtle, first of all, the market should be able to do the arithmetic. But when you take extreme cases, just just to exaggerate for a second, a subsidiary that is one percent of the market cap yep. say, I think the spinoff dynamics are most spinoffy in terms of the potential of an investment opportunity or a pricing anomaly is when the businesses are Utterly unrelated, and then you pick a uh, subsidio that's say one percent of the overall business. That, that's a little bit of the argument that even if the arithmetic can be done properly, you know, you have a taste for a spoonful of sugar in your coffee. You can't taste one crystal. It's like one crystal of coffee. Even if arithmetic's done correctly, it is immaterial to the overall business. An analyst is not counting it in slightly. They're counting it in none. So I think that is a good argument for why spinoffs can outperform, right? That is, hey, we spin this company
0: off and it's 1% of the company's overall value and nobody bothers to value it once it's spun off. But when it's part of the company, you know, if something's only 1% of the value, then you probably don't even need to bother valuing it because it yes. doesn't matter if it's worth 10, 11, or 9, if the whole thing is worth 1,000, 11 or 9 doesn't make a difference I think that's an argument why spinoffs are a place to look for misperformance but it doesn't necessarily refute this the market can't do math argument does that make sense yeah fair enough yeah yeah so I don't know I I think it'll be interesting going forward and then look you've seen over the past couple years a lot more spinoffs than normal have spun off with higher leverage we've seen a lot of spinoffs go bankrupt go into quick distress and it also is interesting you know the cost of being public is higher than ever you see companies like Uber and all these other kind of unicorn companies do not want to go public because they don't want to bear the cost of being public. Well, when you spin off a company, what was once one public company is now two public companies, you're incurring double the price of being public. So there is kind of an interesting argument there that's saying, hey... Why take on this extra added cost of being a public company? Does it make sense to incur that twice? For super large companies, it probably doesn't make a difference, but for companies in the 200 to 500 million range, that is something that they have to increasingly think about going forward. I'll turn it over to you for last thoughts.
1: Follow the incentives. You say they matter a lot. They do. If you look at exactly where the best managers are going and how much economics they'll have in the different parts, you can get a lot of information and you can do it faster and before a lot of the big institutional investors who don't automatically own them day one in a process that doesn't have all of the weaknesses of an IPO process for an outside passive minority investor. So they're worth looking at. Perfect. So that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder,
0: if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. Of course, we really only talked about Kroger on this podcast, so I think we don't have any disclosures. None specifically that we named, no. Perfect. We'll talk to you guys next week.